0: to take a Bible and go with me to John 17. We come again to the the prayer of Jesus uh, the night before His death, and we look specifically at a request Jesus makes for Christian unity in uh, verses 20 to 23. Uh, Many of you have noticed that we'll take the Lord's Supper again this morning, and I find it a, a rather kind providence of our Father that we would land on the subject of Christian unity the day we take the Lord's Supper together, because any of us who have read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11 know that Christian unity actually springs from what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, Jesus' death and resurrection on on our behalf, actually unites people in one body to God. And so it was simply unthinkable that the church come to eat the Lord's Supper when disunity prevailed in the hearts of the people. And my hope today is that uh, this message will help you celebrate the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Uh, that instead of pasting over the, the disunity that may exist in, in your heart, God would bring forth true reconciliation and sincere forgiveness and genuine love for one another. All flowing out of what we're going to see Jesus praise regarding Christian unity. If you want to know the heart of God for the church... Uh, From the way you eat this supper this morning, to to the way you serve in nursery, to the way you walk together during the week, to the way you interact together in this world, listen to Jesus' prayer. Verse 20 I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would use this word to build in us the very unity we read of here. That as we look to Christ and place our trust in Him, we would find ourselves brought into the circle of triune community. That even our own lives might reflect the very unity that we see in your personality. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to verse 20, uh, there's a bit of a shift that occurs in Jesus' prayer. Jesus' requests have, have, have sort of been moving outward in these uh, concentric circles. He, he prays first for himself, that his own life would glorify his his Father. And, and then out from there, he, he begins praying for this little band of 11 disciples that that the Father might keep them and protect them and sanctify them. And and now what what we see is that His prayers are going out even further to extend to all the people who will believe in Him through the disciples' testimony. That's the church. Uh, if If you have believed the gospel, if you have trusted in the disciples' testimony that Jesus is who He says He is then this is what Jesus prays for you and, and me. He's, it's what He wants for us. And one of the main requests Jesus makes for you and me is that we may all be one, perfectly one. Uh, he prays essentially for Christian unity. That, that Christian unity might, might permeate the final community that He is gathering beneath His kind lordship. And And there are at least four things that we need to note about this Christian unity. First of all, notice that Christian unity proceeds from triune community. Christian unity, our our unity as a church, it proceeds from triune community. It's probably easy for us uh, not to think all that much about unity. I mean, after all, isn't there plenty of unity to be had in the world? Uh, People seem to find unity all the time, at least in some limited sense. Unity in political vision, unity in what you like on Facebook, unity on projects at work, unity in cheering on the favorite team, unity in convictions about education, unity in culture, music, ethnicity, and on we could go, of course. But what becomes abundantly clear over time is that this unity doesn't actually last. It has no substance. It doesn't last because the bulk of it, in some way or another, is rooted in in shared self-interest more than being rooted in anything substantial and lasting. You you know how it goes. I, I unite with you insofar as you agree with me, myself, and I. Um... As long as you never unfriend me on Facebook, we're united. Uh, We work on the same project together at work, but I couldn't stand to eat lunch with the guy. We we see entire nations team up with one another, not because they have a unified vision of a peaceful society, but because you, you have oil and we want the cash. It's just a larger picture of of the sin inside of all of us. The world's unity revolves around self-interests. Around the self. But when we turn to the church, we find a unity that proceeds from something altogether different. We find a unity proceeding not from anything inside of us, or not from anything that's natural to us, or that we can find in this world. Unity within the church proceeds from something outside of us. It proceeds from something supernatural. Indeed, it proceeds from the unity of the one true God, who eternally exists as a trinity of persons. And in particular, Jesus points out that our unity proceeds from From his own intimate relationship with the Father. And our relationship to them. You can look at it again in verse 21. They may all be one. So there's the unity. What's it grounded in? Just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you. That they also may be in Us. Then again, toward the end of verse 23, that they may be one. What's it rooted in? Even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So you see how it works. Any true unity that's going to bring God glory, that's going to last. It doesn't begin with something we do, or something that we can find in this world. All true unity that brings God glory proceeds from the very being of God Himself. It's here, in in the being of God Himself, where there's no hindrance to unity. Uh, Where no sin exists to divide persons of the Godhead. Where no lie exists that would cause one to to distrust the other. Where no suspicion exists of whether the other has his best interest at heart. Where where no prideful impulse is present to one up the other. Where all that they love, they love together. Where all that they plan, they plan together. Where all that they do, they do together together in infinite intimacy, truth, and joy. And we've seen this play out in the Gospel of John, have we not? Between the Father and the Son, especially, we've seen that the Father and Son, they so mutually indwell one another that that anything the Son does, we can also say the Father does it through Him. The Father creates the world, as does the Son. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 3. Uh, To see Jesus heal a man, chapter 5, right, is to see the Father working. To see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead is to see the Father's glory on display. To hear Jesus speak is actually to hear the words of the Father himself. Then in chapter 14, even to see Jesus is to see the Father in him all the while, of course, maintaining their distinct persons and and role within the Godhead. The point is to show that the Father and Son are one. They are one in love and purpose and mission. And here Jesus prays that we come to share in this unity, that that we become partakers of this unity, that that we who live in a world that, that knows no such unity as this, Who live in a world that can't even begin to fathom or create the depth of such unity that that we see in the Godhead. In in a world where even if we agree that we all must brush our teeth, we, we don't agree on where to squeeze the toothpaste to. Right? It's from the bottom up. In this kind of world, right, Jesus prays that we become a people... So intimately connected with God that we even mirror the unity of the triune community. This is what he's fixing to give his life for. That every sin keeping us from fellowship with this triune God might be dealt with once and for all. That this death might open a way for us to encounter the multifaceted yet always united beauty of the Father's relationship with the Son. And even more, that the Father and Son themselves take up residence in us through the Holy Spirit. We saw that in chapter 14. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. If anybody loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we, Father and Son, will come to him and make our home with him. Speaking about the ministry of the Spirit coming. So the idea is that through the work of Christ on the cross and through the mediating work of the Spirit, we gain fellowship with this triune God. And our dependence on the triune God, our union with God in Christ, then produces unity between all God's people, such that our unity even mirrors that unity that we see in the Father and the Son. It's it's absolutely incredible. Second, we see that Christian unity is, is impossible without trust in Christ. Christian unity is impossible without trust in Christ. Nobody just stumbles into this unity, in other words. Nobody just uh, discovers the unity proceeding from the triune God. This special unity is something granted only to those who believe the gospel. Only to those who trust the testimony that the disciples give about Jesus. If you don't accept the disciples' testimony about Jesus, you will never enjoy the unity that's proceeding from the triune God because you'll never have a relationship with God. Your sin is too great. It separates you from, from God. And, and all you'll get is separation from true unity. You'll get separation from God. What 2 Thessalonians 1.9 calls the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. But if you trust in what the disciples preach about Jesus, you trust in what they say about him here written in the scriptures, when, when their words about Jesus become your banner, your joy, your treasure, your dope, whatever word of preciousness you want to call it, only then will you gain a vital relationship with God. Which then leads to the unity that we're spoke, that's spoken of here. That's the point Jesus makes in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, and He means these eleven disciples, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. Meaning, through the disciples' word. Through the disciples' preaching, through the disciples' writings of the New Testament when the Holy Spirit comes and inspires them to write these things. Now, that's not to discredit the Old Testament's witness to Jesus. It's just to say that with the coming of Jesus, all access to a relationship with God hinges on whether one embraces the disciples' testimony about God coming in the flesh. Whether one believes that all the Old Testament finds its center and fulfillment in the gospel of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. It's through the preaching of Christ that we know where peace with God is found. And where peace with one another flourishes. It's through the preaching of Christ that every person is exposed for the sinner that they really are. No one person can say that they're better than the next. It's through the preaching of Christ that we find acceptance with God. So We don't have to compete to find acceptance with others. God's acceptance of us is enough. It's through the preaching of Christ that we learn of the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been torn down in Jesus' crucified body. It's through the preaching of Christ that we say there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there's no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Without faith in Jesus, as preached by the apostles, Christian unity is non-existent. People get this so backwards sometimes. They know unity is important, so they put it at the top, and then they try to do everything in their power to, to create it. They bring all kinds of strategies to the table. We've got to have more game nights, a few bowling adventures, watch a video on how to be united, and then make sure everybody has their own affinity group. And if they don't, then we need to create more affinity groups. And I'm not saying that any of those things are inherently evil or any, that any of them couldn't serve to deepen relationships in the process. I'm just saying that if Christ isn't being lifted up, not unity, but Christ lifted up as the apostles preach Him, then all of our strategies are in vain. We we flip the table. The Lord has given the church His strategy for unity. It's this, keep Jesus Christ lifted up through the apostles' words so that people believe in Him. And I don't mean so that people believe in Jesus once in order to enter the church. I mean so that people in the church keep believing in Jesus. They keep trusting in Jesus. Find disunity in the church, and there you will find a lack of trust in Christ. Find division in the church, and there you will find a failure to apply the Apostles' words. Find tension in your heart towards another brother or sister, and there you will find the need to remember Christ and Him crucified for sinners." Christian unity is impossible without trusting Christ. Without faith in Christ, we have no access to the triune God and no gospel truth to transform our relationships. Yes, we will share similar histories, passions, hobbies, career paths, generational preferences, book interests, you name it, but none of these can be the center of our unity. Christ must be the center of our unity. You build unity on anything else, your house will sink in the sand. Christ is the rock. He is the rock of our faith. He is the rock of our relationships with one another. Third, Christian unity shows no favoritism. Christian unity shows no favoritism. We have to remember that Jesus' prayer is part part of a much larger narrative, a much larger story here that John is telling. Uh, And from this story we know that that the Father has given a people to the Son out of the world. Uh, They were lost in sin and God chose to save them from their sin by giving them to the Son. But it doesn't take much for us to see that these people come from all kinds of places and from all kinds of backgrounds and ethnicities and religious practices and, and have, they have all kinds of sins with them. And so you've got a crew of Jewish disciples, mostly fishermen, one an influential tax collector. You've got a woman who's not just a Samaritan, but also an adulteress who hides her sin behind her religious veneer. Chapter, that's chapter 4. You, you've got all those coming to Jesus then from this woman's hometown. You've got a royal official in chapter 4. A blind beggar in chapter 9. Some Greeks in chapter 12. All kinds of people coming to Jesus. And then we get this in chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus has these Jews standing before him. And he says to the Jews, I have other sheep that are not of this Jewish fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. When you hear, they will listen to my voice. In chapter 10, think of chapter 17, verse 20. Those who will believe in me through their word. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. And then he says this, So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. Not a Jewish flock over here and a Gentile flock over here. Not a black flock over here and a white flock over here. Not an educated rich flock over here and a less educated poor flock over there. One flock, one shepherd. Then again in chapter 11, verse 52, Caiaphas prophesies that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God has children scattered abroad. They're scattered into places you don't want to go. They commit sins that make you blush, they've got problems that are over your head. They've got political positions that are going to make you mad. They've got smells you won't like. But Jesus died to gather them into one, he says. Into one. His prayer to make them one continues this theme that we've seen throughout John it fits into this bigger story, this bigger picture. It's, it's what's behind the all of verse 21. That they may all be one. All, meaning all without distinction. Christian unity is indiscriminate because God's love toward the world is indiscriminate. His love extends to all kinds of people. red, yellow, black, white, or brown, young people and old people, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, homeschool people, public school people, moralists, prostitutes, from bad sinners to the worst sinners. To show favoritism toward one type of person over the other is a functional denial of God's work in Jesus Christ. It's actually to join enemy ranks who oppose the spreading kingdom of the triune God. Christian unity shows no favoritism because Jesus prays for all to be one before dying for them to all be one. Last point before teasing this out a bit more for our church. Christian unity aims for worldwide witness. It aims for worldwide witness. You see, there's a... Here's what happens when you've got Brian, the white plumber from Mississippi, and Rose, the black businesswoman from New York, and Abdul, the Arab, Arabic immigrant from... Dubai, who grew up in Islam, and Tasha, the woman who never had a home because she was sold so early into prostitution. Here's what happens when you have all these kinds of people believe in Jesus, get rescued out of their sins, and then wedded to the church, which reflects the unity of the triune God. Here's what happens. The world is shocked. The world cannot explain that. The world is stumped over the nature and the depth of our unity. And the only thing that, make, that can make sense of it all is the Father's work in Jesus. That's what Jesus says at the end of verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's, there's this witness to our, of our unity to the world. Then again in verse twenty three, that they may become perfectly one, so that the, the world may know that you sent me and love them as even as you love me. The world's supposed to look in at the church and see that the Father has loved these people as he loves his own son. Because of what the Son has done for them. So what's the goal of Christian unity? The goal of Christian unity is worldwide witness. In other other words, we, church, are the visible outworking of God's work in Christ. We are the visible testimony that the cross saves sinners. We are God's object lesson, His tangible reminder to the world that through Christ's death and resurrection, God disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He broke the power of sin in your life and he's bringing all things in subjection to Christ. That's what the church is. When you pursue Christ and grow in unity with one another, you as a local church magnify God's glory in the gospel. You are, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 8.23, you are the glory of Christ. And what he means is you are the glory of Christ. He's talking about all the churches in Macedonia. The churches are the glory of Christ. Meaning, Made visible. So that the world can see. So those are our four points about Christian unity that I wanted to bring out. And now I want to spend some time teasing out what we've just heard. And I want to do it in respect to a few things I've observed hindering our unity at Redeemer. Redeemer. Not all of these will apply, I want you to hear this, not all of these will apply to every person equally in the room. But I believe we need to hear them as a whole body, because we're all vulnerable to the same things. We need to hear them as a whole body in order to grow together into the picture we've seen here of Christian unity, what Jesus desires for us. So the first thing I want to mention is this. Our unity will be as great as our pursuit of God. Our unity will be as great as our pursuit of God. If true unity proceeds from from fellowship with the triune God, then we must pursue Him together. I I heard one pastor illustrate this with with an upside-down cone, uh, like a sugar cone maybe. An upside-down cone with the triune God at the top. And, and, all, and as all the members of this, of this church, of His church, pursue Him and love Him and grow to enjoy more of Him, we all grow nearer to one another. The more we're pursuing God, the more He will unite us. That means you need to evaluate things in your own Christian walk, like your pursuit of God in prayer and devotion to His Word. If you're not communing with God in prayer if you're not depending on God in prayer and drawing from God's own circle of triune love, then what is it that you really want from Christianity? It's certainly not the same things that God wants. And how are you seeking to know Him in His Word? If His Word is far from us, we will not be moving toward Him together. Have you ever thought that that devotion to God's Word isn't just for your own sake? It isn't just for your own joy. It's also for the sake of the church. It's also for the sake of the church's unity. The, the, The disunity that some of you experience in your own relationships isn't because you know too much about God, but because you know God too little. Ask God to rekindle a love for His Word and prayer and then pursue Him together. Another thing to consider... Beware of satanic lies that threaten our unity. Beware of satanic lies that threaten our unity. Christian, You see, Christian unity take, has to take place on enemy ter- in, in enemy territory, doesn't it? Look back at verse 15. Keep them from the evil one. Satan doesn't want us united. He didn't want the disciples united either. He got one of them Judas. We must remain alert to his subtle lies that threaten our unity. Subtle lies, subtle false narratives that we impose on each other as the result of our own sinful cravings and self-preoccupation. I'm not saying we, blame, we can blame the devil for these lies. I'm just saying that he uses them to divide us, to wreak havoc on our relationships, or at least to keep them from thriving. So there's this great example of, of these, how they have these subtle lies work to destroy unity. I read it uh, in an article recently by David Pallison. He writes this on, on anger. Uh, but I thought I'd read it, this little portion, uh, about his own experience with another lady in, the, in his church. And it might help point you to ways that you might be buying into similar lies because of your cravings. So this is what he's right. A friend once came up to me after church and said, I want to ask your forgiveness for something. I've been angry at you for eight months, and I've just held it in trying to forgive you, but God has convicted me, and I want to get things solved between us. I was grateful that she wanted to get things straight. And that she'd had the courage and humility to raise a problem. But as she tried to describe an incident in the hallway at church where I had ignored and snubbed her, she totally lost me. Whatever was she talking about? I couldn't remember ever doing anything against her. Finally, we pieced it together. During the worship service one morning, I had started to feel nauseous. While heading for the men's room, I had passed her in the hall... With the barest acknowledgment, no hello or conversation, and an unhappy look on my face. She had interpreted all this as directed at her. Eight months of anger resulted from perceiving evil where evil was not present. Her desire for acceptance had ruled... Or perhaps it would be better to say, her craving for acceptance had conflicted with the desires of the Spirit in her. To be seemingly ignored and frowned at by a presumed friend is no fun. Where God rules, hurt and anger will move us to resolve things in a godly way, checking out our perceptions. This, in fact, she finally did, to the praise of His grace, and we were reconciled. But, and I, and I want you to get this, where false beliefs and cravings rule, our perceptions stay twisted. We get stuck in hurt and anger. To a degree, this had happened, delaying reconciliation by many months. Insert our little to the degree this had happened, her these twisted perceptions delaying unity by many months. I know that some of you can think of similar examples in your own life right now, occasions when your own false beliefs and cravings twist your perception of others in this local church. And instead of going to the brother or sister, you sit on it. You stew over it. You cry yourself to sleep because of it. You don't say anything in care group about it. You avoid fellowship with those people so that you don't have to talk about it. And when you do talk about it with others, you start feeding the same narrative to others. And the time just passes while the devil does his work to stifle the unity. Listen, the more we love God, the more we will hate the sin that divides us. The more we walk in His truth, the more we'll be able to discern and work through the lies that separate us. The more we cherish the gospel, the more we'll be able to annihilate whatever keeps things awkward and keeps us holed up in self-preoccupation. My charge is to put on the belt of truth this morning and make war on sin and the devil. Don't live by lies. Expose them and work patiently toward the truth and then walk in it together. Something else. Preserving this kind of unity isn't easy or comfortable, but it's worth it. Preserving this kind of unity isn't easy or comfortable, but it's worth it. There are tons of exhortations in the New Testament where the apostles are trying to press the churches into deeper unity. And they're usually associated with comments like this, with patience. Bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Aim for restoration. Agree with one another in the Lord. At one point, Paul even, even calls out these two sisters who are apparently aren't united in Philippians 4. And he says to the elders and to the deacons, he says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Help these women. In other words, get them in your office, go to them in their home, you sit them down, you work through the issues, and help them agree in the Lord. (laughs) That ain't comfortable stuff. That ain't easy. The picture we get is that relationships in the church are oftentimes messy. They are relationships that require confession of sin, patience. Forgiveness, intentional pursuit of agreement, firm accountability, rebuke, correction, setting aside personal preferences to live in harmony with each other. It's not like everybody floats ten inches off the ground with a halo on their heads. Unity is hard when you're dealing with people who still have sin in their lives, who still have weaknesses and blind spots. But here's the thing... Even though those relationships are worth the blood of Jesus Christ, we don't want to put up with what's necessary to preserve them. Tim Keller has this great quote Everybody says they want community and deep friendship. However, because it takes accountability and commitment, we run the other way. That's so true. And we know it's been true since Redeemer's inception. And we know it's been true for an even longer time in the broader American evangelical church. That's why books get written, like, stop dating the church. Western consumerism is so much a part of the air we breathe, we don't even pick up on the way it affects, it, the way it affects our Christian unity. Whenever unity becomes inconvenient or requires uncomfortable effort or in awkward conversations, we split. We go church hopping. Why bother with patience if I can just get something different down the street? Why wrestle over this doctrine when I can just go somewhere else that believes what I believe? Why waste time sharing my concerns when I can just go somewhere else that does it the way I like it? Why bother with genuine reconciliation in my care group when I can just hop over to the next care group? Why bother sharing the hurt and loneliness I feel with anybody else when I can just rearrange my life and escape it all? Instead of using the grace that we've been given to strengthen weaknesses or heal wounds or correct pride or address sin, we are all tempted to run. We are all vulnerable to this. And like I said, this isn't just something we've experienced at Redeemer. I've talked, and I am talking with other pastors in the Metroplex. And they see it too. It happens in their church too. I participated in it myself. I didn't draw near to leadership in my previous church before I left. I didn't want to deal with the problems I was seeing. I didn't want to wait patiently for things to change. It was easier to leave and come here. But once the Lord opened my eyes to the nature of the church and the nature of church membership and the relationships that were worth the blood of Jesus Christ and the longings in this prayer of Jesus for deep abiding unity among His people, I called the previous leadership of that church. I confessed my sin and my selfishness and I said I would have done it another way. And this man and his staff forgave me and I stand united with him in his church and ministry. Some of you need to have deeper conversations with each other than you have been having. A few of you need to have those conversations before you take this supper. Please, for the sake of Jesus Christ, have them. The prayers and work of Jesus Christ stand behind you. Our unity is worth the blood of Jesus. It's worth magnifying the greatness of the God who reconciled us. So that the world knows that he sent the Son. Which leads me to one last point of application. We must prepare to eat with all kinds of people. We must prepare to eat with all kinds of people. That's the test, right? That's why Paul rebuked Peter. Peter. In Galatians 2:11, Peter was happy eating with the Gentiles until his friends showed up from Judaism. Then Peter drew back and separated himself fearing what they're going to think of him. And Paul calls him out on it. He calls it hypocrisy and out of step with the gospel. Can you eat at this table today with all kinds of people that the Lord Jesus has redeemed? Can you welcome into your house tomorrow all kinds of people the Lord Jesus has redeemed? The mission of Christ knows no limits in who it reaches in the world. God has chosen a people for His own Son. And many of these, uh, of these people are in communities you are likely less than comfortable dealing with. As we keep preaching the gospel, God will win the hearts of all of His elect. And some of them are in the LGBT community right now. Some of them are feminist scholars right now. Some of them are poor, uneducated, and in, 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 in need of great help right now. Some of them are tied up in in those so-called less acceptable sins, which is self-righteous to its core. Some of them are prostitutes and pimps. Are you ready to eat with them at this table when the Lord saves them and cleanses them from all of their sins? Do you believe the cross is sufficient to cover not just your own sins, but all of theirs as well. Because if you're not, you don't get the gospel. If you're not willing to eat, you don't get the gospel. You haven't felt the depravity of your own heart. You haven't experienced what Jesus' cross really does for people. When it washes them totally clean, takes away their shame, and it clothes them with glory. None of us deserves to eat at the king's table. But all of us are welcome to eat by faith in Jesus. And the same is true for all people who believe, not just the people we like. So come and eat together this morning without hypocrisy. Come and eat as those loved, even as God loved His own Son, Come and gather at the table of the Lord with all of God's redeemed. And as you taste, again, redemption's sweetness, prepare yourself to eat with all kinds of people. Those the Lord will bring in our midst. Prepare yourself to be a community that welcomes all kinds of people. Whatever the background, whatever sins they're caught up in, whatever color of their skin, whatever their accent, whatever their needs, whatever their smells, prepare to welcome them in the Lord Jesus And then go to all kinds of people and invite them to enjoy a fellowship with God that they will not find in this world. Redeemer, our unity is far from perfect. But that doesn't mean we're without hope. Jesus, the Son of God, prays for us to be perfectly one. And there was nothing that he missed on the cross to make that happen. And the Father will be faithful to secure it for us once and for all. And we will see it one day face to face when He returns and gathers all of the redeemed. And we are at His throne in perfect harmony and perfect unity, in glory, celebrating His love. Let's eat together.